Section 51 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Homicide, Part 28, The Brantley-Eskridge Romance, Part 4. In continuation of the tragic story, we quote from the testimony of the Marshal of Macon, who was also a deputy sheriff. He said, I was acquainted with John Harris Brantley and have known his wife Minerva since 1860. I have known Joseph and Eskridge about 12 years. On the morning of the fourth day of December, 1870, I was ordered by the sheriff to go to Shakalak and summon a jury for the purpose of holding an inquest upon the body of Brantley. I was also informed by the sheriff that Mrs. Brantley was in town at the hotel. I called upon her and told her that her husband was at Shakalak and that she must go with me to that place. She asked me if her husband had been arrested. I told her it made no difference. She would find out when she arrived there. Mrs. Brantley at the time was under the influence of morphine. She said she was suffering from neuralgia and could not go with me. I insisted that she should get up and go at once. She then asked me why I wished her to go with me and inquired again if Mr. Brantley had been arrested. I told her it made no difference, that she would learn about that after we started, that she must get up and go with me, which she did. On the road to Shackalock, we came up with the sheriff, who informed Mrs. Brantley that her husband had been killed at Shackalock that morning. She made an effort to cry, but did not shed many tears. We then went on to Shackalock. While we were on the road, I handed her a letter. She then spoke of Mr. Brantley and said she had always told him that if he was ever killed or captured, it would be at a time when she was going to him. On the way, she talked of her affairs at home, saying that she was left in a bad condition, that Mr. Brantley was always writing to her for money, and she did not have any to send him that he had written her to come on and see him, and she was afraid to stay away. Apparently, her husband's death was the least of her troubles. I asked her if she had any idea who did the deed. She answered that she had not, that she could not think of anyone who had animosity against him sufficient to do such a deed. When we arrived at Shackalack, we passed within 30 or 40 steps of the place where Brantley was killed. I asked her if she wanted to see her husband's body, and she said she did not. I inquired if she wished to go to the hotel, and she asked me if I did not have a friend at whose house I could take her so that she would be secluded. I told her that I did have, and I carried her to Captain Roll's house. During the drive from Macon, she seemed quite indifferent about her husband and the manner of his death, 
and much of the time she talked and acted in an ordinary and unconcerned manner. She did not go to see her husband's body at any time. I remained at Shackalock from about 10 o'clock in the morning until about an hour by the sun in the evening. I visited Mrs. Brantley several times during the day. She made no allusion to her husband, except to ask me what the notions of the people were about his death. I told her that they were saying that she was as deep in the crime as the man who committed the murder. She replied to this, and she could not see what grounds they could have for such a feeling against her. I told her it was because of a letter written by her, which was found on Mr. Brantley's person after he was murdered, stating that she would be at Chocolock on the morning train of December 4th. I then asked her why she did not get off the train at Chocolock instead of going up to Macon. She replied that she sent a gentleman, who was sitting on the seat next to her, to inquire if Mr. Brantley was there. And he told her Mr. Brantley was not there. And so she then went on to Macon, because Macon was the next station. I asked her why she did not get off at Shackalack, even though Mr. Brantley was not there. She did not reply to this question. She made no inquiry concerning the dead body of her husband as to what attention was being paid to it, or whether it was receiving any attention at all. I told her I was going away, when she eagerly asked me where I was going. I answered her by saying that the sheriff had ordered me to capture the man who had done this deed. When I said that, she looked frightened, and pleadingly implored me not to go and leave her all alone, in such a condition but to let someone else go, as I was all the friend she had. I told her I would have to go, or I would lose my office. She asked if I had any idea who the person was. I answered I had not. I further said to her that if she had, and if it was a friend of hers, she must tell me, confidentially, as her friend, and I then would know how to proceed. She replied, Mr. Simmons, I cannot say. I then left her. During the day, I had made inquiries in Chocolat about what had occurred there at the time of and immediately preceding the killing of Brantley for the purpose of getting a clue to the murderer. I learned that a stranger came there the night before on a gray horse and was first observed at about nine or ten o'clock when he hitched his horse in a backyard behind a store. And at about eleven o'clock, he brought the horse in front of the store and tied it to a wagon. I was shown both places where the horse had been tied. I also learned that this strange man had been prowling about the place during the night until Brantley was killed, and then he left on his gray horse. While lurking about the depot, the stranger had a blanket thrown over his shoulders and a double-barreled shotgun partially concealed under it. I got a minute description of this gray horse and made a careful examination of his tracks where he had been hitched and noticed that the horse was barefoot except the left forefoot, which had a worn shoe upon it. After obtaining all the information I could, 
I followed the track of the horse from the corner of the depot where it had been hitched last. From the tracks, the horse appeared to have taken an easterly course towards Wahalak, going in a lope. As long as daylight lasted, we were enabled to follow the horse by its tracks. At the forks of the road, the tracks indicated which road he took and also showed that he went in a lope for seven miles until he arrived at the house of Mr. Etheridge. At the house, I learned that the horse and the rider had stopped there, and from a description of them, I knew I was on the right course. I pursued an easterly direction through Wahalak in Mississippi to Gainesville in Alabama. We made inquiries along the road for the horse and rider, and thus were enabled to follow them. We also could see the tracks of the horse in the soft places in the road, as the moon was shining brightly. When we arrived at Gainesville, we learned upon inquiry at the ferry that the man and horse had crossed the ferry in the direction of Utah, Alabama. After having our horses fed, we continued our pursuit, crossing the Bigbee River at Gainesville and rode eastwardly until we came to the house of Dr. Jolly, which is about six miles from Gainesville near Mount Hebron. All the way on the road from Shakalak to the house of Dr. Jolly, wherever we could see the track, it showed that the horse was barefoot except the left forefoot. I became familiar with the appearance of the track so that I could recognize it as a glance. On the road, we obtained frequent descriptions of the horse and rider, of the dress of the rider and the outfit of the horse. After crossing the ferry, we met a Negro, and from information received from him, and by taking him along with us, we went to the house of Dr. Jolly, which is about 300 yards from the public road. This house is not the residence of Dr. Jolly, but that of his plantation overseer. Two gentlemen went with us from Gainesville. Arriving at the place, we went first to the overseer's barn, and there found in a stable a deep iron-gray horse, with head and neck whiter than any other part of him. He was a remarkably fine, stylish-looking animal. I found three of his feet bare, but the left forefoot had a shoe on it which was badly worn, particularly in front. After examining the horse and posting guards at the two doors of the house, the deputy who accompanied me sent the negro to wake up the overseer. The latter came out to the fence. We gave him a description of the man we were in search of, told him our business, and inquired if the man was in his house. We were informed that he was. By arrangement, we all went to the door of the room where the man was. When the overseer called to the man and said that he wanted some medicine, which was in the room, and asked him to get up and light a candle, the man got up, lighted a candle, unfastened and opened his door, and we then seized him. When we arrested the man, he asked, What right have you to come here and arrest me? I replied, You are the man who killed Brantley at Chocolock yesterday morning, and we are going to take you back there. 
The man then asked me what authority I had to take him from one state to another. I answered that my authority was main strength and that the sheriff of Noxaby County had sent me after him and I was going to take him back dead or alive. When we arrested the man, I recognized his features but could not recollect his name as I had not seen him since the war. I said to him, You know me. What is your name? He replied, I will not tell you till I see counsel in Gainesville. I told him that he would never see counsel in Gainesville, that the only counsel he could see would be in Shackalack. In the room where we discovered him, we found his saddle and saddle bags, his double barrel shotgun, and two pistols, six shooters. His gun was unbreached and wrapped in a piece of blanket and tied behind the saddle. I took the gun and examined it minutely. One barrel was loaded with 18 buckshot, such as are commonly called blue whistlers. The right-hand barrel was empty and appeared to have been shot off. The gun was a new one, and the left-hand barrel appeared never to have been used. We took the man and put him on a horse and took him back to Gainesville. On the ferry flat at Gainesville, he called me aside and said to me, Simmons, I know you. I knew you at first, but I did not want to let you know my name until we got here to Gainesville, where I can have counsel. I told him he might just as well tell me his name at once, as he could have no counsel in that place. He then told me his name, and I recognized him as Joseph N. Eskridge, a man whom I had known before. He again asked me to let him see counsel in Gainesville. I refused to do this, but I untied him and advised him to go back with us voluntarily, as it would be better for him to do so. The place where we arrested Eskridge is in Greene County, Alabama, 34 miles east from Shakalak. It was about daylight on the morning of the 5th of December when we reached Gainesville. There we purchased a bottle of whiskey, and at Eskridge's request, we bought a small vial of morphine for him. We remained only long enough to effect these purchases, and then rode on toward Shakalak. When about a mile from Gainesville, we stopped, and Eskridge took some morphine, while we took a drink of whiskey, and I invited Eskridge to take some with us. He did so, and then commenced crying. He said he would not mind being taken back, if it were not for his wife and two little children, that he had as good a wife and two as lovely children as were in the state of Alabama. I said to him, Joe, what did you kill Brantley for? He replied, if I killed him, I had a cause, but I did not do it. He spoke the latter part of the sentence in a low tone of voice. He then said, Woman, 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 this kind heart of mine has brought me to where I am. I then stopped him and told him not to talk anymore on that subject. We proceeded on our way, and when we came near to the church in Chocolat, where the graveyard is, we saw a burial procession at the graveyard, 
and the deputy accompanying us said they were burying Brantley there. Eskridge then said to me, Simmons, for God's sake, don't carry me past there. I do not want to be disgraced that far. As he spoke, he became very pale. We then turned around to avoid going past the burying ground, and Eskridge asked us to stop a moment until he could take another dose of morphine. While taking the drug, he remarked that it was the only thing that would ease his troubles. He then requested me not to take him through the town where the people could see him, that he did not want to be seen going to prison. I complied with his request and conducted him by a back way to Esquire Haynes' house and placed him under guard in a private room upstairs. I there left him. As I was about leaving him, he asked me if Mrs. Brantley was in town. I answered that I did not know. He desired me to ascertain and let him know, as he wished to see her. I told him if she was there, I would return and inform him, but if she was not there, I would not come back. He requested me to get him another vial of morphine and send it to him, as he had taken all that I obtained for him in Gainesville. After leaving Eskridge, I went to the house where I had left Mrs. Brantley the evening before, and upon inquiry, was told she had gone from there to Kemper County, about 18 or 20 miles distant. On the morning of the 6th of December, Eskridge was taken before a court composed of three magistrates of Noxabee County for a preliminary examination. He was fully identified by three or four persons as the man who rode up to the railway station, on the night of 3rd of December, on a gray horse, and who had been observed prowling about the station, as already described. He was promptly committed, without bail, to answer the charge of murder of John H. Brantley. He was first taken by cars to Macon, and kept there, under guard, overnight. The next morning, which was the 7th of December, he was lodged in jail. On the morning of the 8th of December, a warrant was issued for the arrest of Mrs. Minerva S. Brantley on the charge of being accessory to the murder of her husband. A deputy sheriff made the arrest at the residence of Mr. Maury in Kemper County, whither Mrs. Brantley had gone from Shuckalock. The officer who made the arrest testifies as follows. I told her I had a very unpleasant duty to perform as an officer, that she was my prisoner. She was sick in bed and unable to be removed. I summoned her attending physician, and he decided she was not able to be moved. When I first went into her room, she was in bed, lying with her face from me, with her head on the far end of the pillow. The end of the pillow towards me was tilted up, and I noticed the handle of a small Wesson pistol, which I took and removed from under the pillow. When I told her she was my prisoner, she turned in bed and put her right hand under the pillow from which I had just taken the pistol. I said to her, It is not there. She then lay down in the bed and had a sort of fainting spell. I examined the pistol soon afterwards and found three cartridges in it. 
I remained at the house in charge of Mrs. Brantley three or four days at the expiration of which time the sheriff and deputy sheriff Simmons came and took her to my own house in Macon, where I guarded her until between the 10th and 20th of December. Deputy Sheriff Simmons testifies relative to his official visit to Mrs. Brantley during this period of her arrest as follows. When we arrived where she was, Mrs. Brantley drew me aside and said, Mr. Simmons, I will never forgive you for this. For what? For bringing Joe Eskridge back? She answered, yes. I told her she need not blame me for that, that in my opinion, she knew as much about who had committed this crime before he was captured as she did now. When we left the house, Mrs. Brantley rode in a buggy with me and continued to ride with me for three miles or more of the way. She talked about Eskridge and asked me if he had said she had anything to do with the murder. I told her he had not. When we reached Noxaby County, the sheriff drove up and stepped into the buggy with Mrs. Brantley, and I got into his buggy. End of section 51